Will you turn in your Bibles, please, to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 5. I've just um, felt God been speaking to me about an aspect of our Christianity that I feel maybe we've neglected. And I want to read some verses to you out of um, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, I've just returned back from um, a two-week holiday in Cape Town, but just before that, I was in the UK, and uh, I was hanging out with some um, people in the UK. Actually, I got to stay in one of the Queen's residences, so I can officially say I have stayed in the Queen's house. Um, and we were doing a, a conference with some movement leaders and people of influence in the UK and Europe and just had an absolute blast, all got really breaking to people's lives. But while I was there, there were a number of Church of England people who were at, the, at this particular conference. In fact, it was headed up by some key people uh, in the Church of England uh, from places like Holy Trinity Brompton. And I, I've grown up in charismania, right? I've grown up in charismatic world where we swing from chandeliers and everything is happy, clappy, nothing's ever quiet, we go a little bit crazy. Kind of like this church. And um, I, I heard a phrase that these Anglicans were using, ever so prim and proper they were, um, and they used this phrase Advent, talking about the Advent season that we are now in. Um, Catholics use it too. It speaks of an anticipation of the arrival of Christ in his birth. It speaks of the anticipation of an event that will shift things on the earth. And that's what Advent means. And Advent in um, the calendar of the Anglican and Catholic Church requires two processes. The first process is one of lament, that we lament what is happening in the world. And so when you read the Gospels, the prelude to the Gospels, you will see that the writers often talk a little bit about what's going on in Israel at the time. Israel was in a place of being dominated and in bondage by the Roman Empire. They couldn't practice and worship God the way they wanted to, and they would lament the fact that they couldn't do that. Uh, I wonder if in our charismatic church world we miss this important part of, uh, of life, that it is right for us to lament what is going on in the world. All you need to do is take out your phone, and you just need to go onto a BBC app or News 24, and you will see that this world is not in a good place. It's getting better, but it's not in a good place. It is right for us to lament and be disappointed with things that are happening. It is right for us to lament the condition and the state of our orphanages in South Africa. It is right for us to lament the, the political situation in South Africa. It is right for us to lament what is happening in Syria. It is right for us to feel bad and to feel anger and to feel frustration because things are not the way they should be. 
And sometimes we miss that because lament helps us in our intercession. Lament helps us in our prayer. But not only that, lament should be followed by longing. You see, the, the process of Advent, the process of waiting, produces a sense of longing, longing for better things to come, longing for the kingdom of God to break out on the earth and make things the way God always intended it to be. Our longing is not one of disillusioned hope. Our longing is one of secured future, that God's kingdom is breaking in on the earth. Amen, Julian, good point. Um, that, that justice, and I want to say that justice does not look like punishment. Justice looks like God making things the way he intended it always to be. Because in the kingdom, the perpetrator and the victim go free because of grace. Oh, that one didn't go over so well, did it? But that's what it looks like at the foot of the cross. That God, in his wisdom, makes sure that everything is the way it should be. And our longing is not one that is based in a hopeless lament. Our longing is one that is based in a hope-filled and a future-filled event of God's kingdom breaking out in fullness once and for all. It's good news. It's good news that we lament with hope that we lament with longing. It's not okay to look at the world and think, oh, well, we just wait for heaven one day. We have to allow the lament of what's going on around us to fuel our intercession. It is not okay for divorce to be the norm. It is not okay for human trafficking to be acceptable. It is not okay for people to come under the bondage of poverty. It is not okay for countries to be torn apart because of powerful people who want another piece of land or some more oil. It's not okay. And so this Advent season, as we look to the birth of Christ and what that represents, it's important that we lament with longing, that we come into a place of God, this world, does not look like it should, but I'm so full of longing that your kingdom has come and is coming, that we live between two ages of an expectation of your goodness breaking out. Things are getting better despite what news might say. And you know how I know that? Because Jesus is alive. And the Bible says that all the kingdoms of the earth will become the kingdoms of our God, and he will make all things new. And this verse that we've read is just quite an incredible verse because it challenges everything we know about culture. It challenges everything we know about leadership. It challenges everything we know about success. Because you see, in the world today, one of the things that we expect is that success looks like a powerful person in a position of leadership. And Paul is writing to a predominant audience that would have understood that when we talk about a king, when we talk about a lord of lords, and we talk about the one who's been given the highest name, that part of that expectation was a king who would come in and bulldoze everything around, come in and take control because they would exert their position of power over someone. And as a result, they will establish their rule and reign. That's how kings did it back in that day. So what makes the gospel so scandalous, what makes the story of Jesus so outrageous, is that he chooses not to use his position or power. He chooses not to wrestle for his authority to be established. 
through power and through force, but he chooses to humble himself. And the very glory of God comes down to earth and puts on human flesh, dust of the earth, and glory gets covered in dirt. That's outrageous. I mean, this, this, this gospel is so scandalous. It's why first century people, Middle Easterners, didn't quite get it because how do you get a king who comes as a suffering servant? How do you get a king who comes not with an agenda to exert my power or my authority or my position? And do you know what? If Jesus did exert his power and his authority, he would be 100% right and he'd still be God. But what he does is he chooses, the Bible says, not to live from the place of his position, his power, his kinship. And instead, he humbles himself. He becomes like one of us. He gets clothed in the same flesh that you and I are clothed in, and he fully identifies with who we are. And that's the beauty of the Christmas story. That's the beauty of this Advent season, that where the world looks to success in terms of position and power and what I've amassed, where it looks to the money that I have in my bank account, when it looks to my position in my company as the measure of success, and in the church world, when it looks to the size of your church and how big and how well-polished your systems are as to whether you're successful or not, we miss the point of the kingdom way that Jesus goes low and he goes slow in order to transform the world around him. You're not a Christian here today and you're trying to figure us all out. Here's the incredible thing is that we realize that we could never do what Jesus ever did. And because he lived a perfect life for us, we get in on all of his holiness and all of his rightness so that what, how he lived becomes a gift for us. Friends, the thing about Jesus it's like he doesn't come riding in on a horse as a conquering hero, killing everyone. The thing about Jesus is that he comes and he gets into the mess. It makes no sense. It's the way of the kingdom. Katya and I were just in Cape Town, and I decided to take Katya to some of the places that I grew up in. I was born on the Cape Flats. I'm a proper Cape Colored, believe it or not. Um, and uh, one of the places that some of my family lived in and some of the places we'll go to is a place called Manenberg. Now, if you know anything about Manenberg, Manenberg is in the top 10 most violent crime capitals of the world. It is outrageous. You, you know, white people do not go into Manenberg. Black people do not go into Manenberg. Posh colored people do not go into Manenberg. You just don't go into Manenberg because you'll probably get killed day or night. And um, I decided to take my wife there. <laughs> Go figure. Some of you are like, oh my gosh. And the reason I took my wife there is because we've got two friends there. Um, a couple called Pete and Sarah Portal, who lead a ministry there called Tree of Life. Pete, is, Pete and Sarah are both graduate from King's College in London. Sarah is a South African who grew up in Constantia, Lohal. If you know anything about Cape Town, Constantia is very fancy. All right, lots of rich people. And um, I'm hoping you get the picture by now that they are both white. And they live 
in Mangenberg. And the reason they live in Mangenberg is because they believe the gospel to be true. That going low and going slow and incarnating this message actually does something. And so they've got a house full of ex-tick addicts who are all violent gangsters who are now Jesus followers and living the way of the kingdom. I mean, it's the most bizarre thing, pulling up and the door open and you see some guys and you think, Jesus, help me. Send the angels, protect me. And out comes this posh Englishman. Good afternoon. And you're kind of like, this does not make sense. And that's exactly what Jesus is like. He does not make sense. It does not make sense. Trust me, this doesn't make sense. That my wife who has got a degree, a medical degree from Imperial, which is the London equivalent of Harvard University. A medical degree. She, Lord Jesus, she gives it all up. I was like my ticket to money. She gives it all up. She gives it all up to serve and to love people and to bring them into freedom. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the way of Jesus. If your life makes sense to too many people, are you living the way of the kingdom? Let me move on quickly. So I'm going to just pull out three things that we learn from this text about the life of Jesus and the way that he lived. And I'm trusting that God will help me communicate to you in, in a real way. The first thing that I love about Jesus is that the Bible says he humbled himself. The actual word there is kenosis, which means he emptied himself. Some of your translations will say that Jesus emptied himself. That doesn't mean that he ceased to, became, to, to be divine. It doesn't mean that he suddenly went from being God to not being God. It just simply means that in essence he was still the same person, but he chose not to live from that place so that he can fully identify with you and me. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus incarnates himself. He becomes human. He puts glory, puts on dirt so that he can fully identify with everything that you and I are identifying with. The pain that we identify with, Jesus identifies with. The suffering that you identify with, Jesus identifies with. The temptation that you identify with, Jesus identified with everything about him means that he understands what it means to be human and although we are broken image bearers of god's humanity in jesus the truth is that he was the perfect image bearer of god and he lived fully human in the best possible way because you see the gospel is not about you becoming a christian the gospel is not simply a message that says, come to Jesus and get your one-way ticket to heaven. No, the gospel is that God himself makes his residence in you so that you can be fully human once again. It means that despite what you're facing, despite the challenges you're going through, despite the difficulties that you're seeing, the truth of the gospel means that you're an overcomer simply because the one who faced every kind of test has passed it on your behalf already. God doesn't just want you to live a spiritual life. He wants you to live a fully human life. Because being fully human, fully identifying with pain, 
fully identifying with difficulty, fully identifying with joy, fully identifying with overcoming is the best possible way to live because that's how God created you to live. You see, in our world, we try and deny pain, we try and deny joy, we try, we, 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 we put off our flesh in a way that the Bible never calls us to. So when the Bible uses the word putting off your flesh, it's talking about your sinful nature. But Jesus, by the power of his spirit, comes to empower who you are as a human. Your body is so important to God. Your flesh is so important to God that one day he's going to glorify it. God wants you to live fully human. But he does this through humility. And sometimes we think that humility is denying who we are. And so we kind of do that, you know, religious thing that many Christians do. Oh, it's not me, it's God. It's all God. You know, who did the mistake in the third son then? Who, who, who did the faux pas? No, no, no. The reality is God is using my body. I, you see, I know I'm a good preacher. I know I'm a good prophetic person. I know I am. That's not arrogant. I'm simply recognizing that my prophetic ability, my preaching ability comes from a good God. But I'm not going to deny who I am to placate a false sense of humility. Because denying who you are puts you as the final judge over your character rather than God. You are who God says you are. Jesus never denied that. In John chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, I am the Son of God. It's not like he's trying to hide who he is. He's simply recognizing that who he is finds its life and source in his Father. You see, true humility does not look like self-denial. True humility looks like a posture of servanthood. That we go low and we go slow and we serve those around us. So we be a people who use what God has called us to be and made us to be as a platform to lift others up. Because that's what Jesus did. This Advent season, would you choose to walk humbly? Would you choose to live through the lens of humility? Because humility gets you into places that you will never be able to get by yourself. Humility is the way of the kingdom. Now, I want to just touch on this just for a moment. There is a theology that says we need to get into the top positions before we can influence anything. There is a theology that says that the only way we're going to make a big change in this world is by people taking high places of influence and making everything Christian. I want to suggest to you it's never worked throughout history and it won't work now. The only way we get to be people who bring transformation is through the humility of servanthood. The second thing that I see about Jesus is obedience. Oh, I don't like this word obedience. Sweet Jesus, Whew, I am learning what it's like to try and teach people obedience with my three-year-old son. Like I am in a constant process of lament with my three-year-old son. I'm like, Jesus, why did you give me this cute, curly-haired boy with the best tan around? And then he's so naughty sometimes. Obedience is hard work, isn't it? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? I didn't need to obey anyone. Yes, you do. Obedience sometimes requires hard, 
rock. But you know what I love about Jesus? It's that his obedience is never, ever based on the fear of punishment. He's not obeying God because he's afraid he's going to get punished. Some of us only give our money because we think God's not going to bless us. Shika bazooka, that went quiet. No, 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 no. Dear friends, obedience is never connected to punishment. For Jesus, obedience was connected to the pure delight of enjoying the Father's love. In John, it says that he, uh, that, let me get the right, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. It goes on later to say, I do nothing unless I see my Father do it. In other words, his obedience was connected to the love that the Father was giving him. Jesus wanted to obey God, not because of a fear of punishment, but because he just enjoyed how good his Father was to him. How many of you know that you're unpunishable? God is never going to punish you for any of your sins ever again. Do you know how come? Because Jesus, the Bible says, gave his life as a ransom for many and took on and absorbed in himself. The Bible says that God was in Christ. God himself took the punishment for your sin. He took the full weight and consequence of every sin, past, present, and future, and he said, I will take the punishment. I will take the full outworking of the sin so you never, ever have to. God is not in the process of punishing this world. Somebody ought to get happy at that point. If you're, a, if you're not a Christian yet and you're thinking, oh my gosh, God must hate me because I've got so many, so many sins. I want to say to you, the Bible says that God no longer counts your sin against you. In other words, when he's doing a reconciliation of your life, your sin doesn't even factor in that. His obedience was not based because he had to do something. His obedience was based out of his love. It was delight-driven. That's why the Bible says it was for the joy that was set before him that Christ endured the cross. He was like, there's, there's a delight. This suffering really sucks right now, but there's joy at the end of this. But the thing about obedience is that obedience is counterintuitive to a me-centered world. And I want to suggest to you, in fact, I want to tell you the truth, that what makes Jesus unique from any other king is that he comes to serve. And if we're to have the same mind as Christ, we need to realize that servanthood is not an optional extra. You see, Servanthood is one of the most culturally, um, most counterculture ways that we can live. And if I may suggest, and because I've got the mic, I will. We live in a world where we orientate our whole life, particularly in South Africa, to paying people to serve us, to do stuff for us. We pay people to do our washing. We pay people to clean our homes. We pay people to clean our cars. We live in a me-centered world that says, if I can throw some money at it, it's okay. Oh, it's gone so quiet. 
in this Anglican church today. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word. But here's the thing, friends. Servanthood is the kingdom way. It means that I serve people around me not because I have to, but because it's part of my spiritual DNA. And if we want to see the world, if we want to see South Africa change, we need to be a people who get up off our middle-class comfortable bums and learn how to serve. And you know what? Paul's talking about just serving in the church in this context. He's not even talking about the world. You see, servant is not an optional extra, friends. I, I love how people often have come to me and said, um, you know, what do I need to do to get up on that stage? Jesus, help me. My first job for two years in ministry was cleaning pigeon poop. That's your answer. You cannot bypass the way to greatness without walking through servanthood. It's in Scripture. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place. You see, until Jesus learned how to serve, from the heart. Oh, I tell you, Jesus help me. I love Simon Sinek. He's a great commentator on culture at the moment. See, the problem with this generation is that very often they think just because they've showed up, they've won the prize. I'll move on quickly. Servanthood is the greatest antidote to a me-first culture. I want to ask you, would you be a community that serves? You know, there's a young lady outside called Grace who's here every single Sunday looking after kids. I'd love it if you took some money out of your bag and just went and showered it on her. Because she serves that we can have a great time here. I think about all of the kids' work. I think about stuff that's happening at the back. I think about these worship team guys. Everything is set up so that you and I can be served. I wonder if we change calling our gatherings a service to a meeting, if something in our minds might change. That you don't come to a service because we're not offering you a service. We're coming together to be family, to serve one another. I, I, I don't want to labor this point too much because it's Christmas. And you all want to feel warm and gooey feelings. But here's the gospel. King of kings. Servanthood. It's the way of the kingdom. And I wonder if in our middle class, Mount Edgecombe, Mumslanga, Durban, North, lovely communities, Somebody needs to get that dodgy colored off the stage. We have made the gospel of Jesus more about us than we have about the posture of Jesus in servanthood. I'll move on to the good stuff now. The third thing 
that I learn about Jesus in this text is love. Jesus did all of this simply because he loved. It is the most outrageous thing that the nature of the triune God is first and foremost expressed through love. Love for each other and love for a world that does not yet know him. It's the most beautiful thing that when you begin to understand that the whole point of the gospel is that God so loved. We've made the gospel about sin. We've made the gospel about works. We've made the gospel about right law keeping when the gospel is simply about love. The kind of love that's offensive to the religious. The kind of love that's offensive to the law keepers. The kind of love that doesn't make sense to anyone. The kind of love that gets uncomfortable. It's called agape love. Love without agenda. Love without motive. Just simply love that says, I want to love you because I love you because I love you because I love you just because I love you. And the highest expression of love is servanthood. Because servanthood requires you to empty yourself like Christ did. It requires you to put someone else in front of you. It requires you to serve. Some of you are going to get the fire back in your marriage when you learn this principle of servanthood. I wonder this Christmas if you will cook your domestic helper a lavish extravagant meal and serve her for a change. It's always lovely to preach this message. You see, love requires self-emptying if it's to be truly loved. And the thing about Jesus is that what's beautiful about his expression of love is that he says to Pontius Pilate, as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he says, no man can take my life from me. I choose to lay it down. Greater love has no man and to lay his life down for a friend. You see, Jesus wasn't murdered by the Jews. He wasn't killed by the Roman Empire. Jesus chose to lay down his life as the one who would reconcile you to himself, all because of love. The Bible says that in love he predestined you to be holy and blameless before God. In other words, have you seen what people who are in love do? I mean, I, I did some crazy things to express my love to Katya because I was in love with her and still am in love with her. I spend huge amounts of money that I should never spend. I sing songs even though I really can't sing. I do embarrassing things publicly that I should never do, all to express my in-loveness with her. When Jesus was thinking about you, in love with you, he laid down his life. The most outrageous thing he could think of to express his in loveness with you is to lay down his life. Brothers and sisters, the most outrageous thing we can do in this nation, this Advent season, is not simply buy a gift, throw some money at something, it's to fall in love with those around us. 
my friend, you can clear a portal. Some of the happiest people that I've ever met. Nothing about their life makes sense. They are degreed, clever people living in Mangenberg because of love. The way of the kingdom looks like going low and going slow. Now, I want to invite you this Advent season, this Christmas season, to not evaluate your life through the lens of what you've achieved this year. To not evaluate your success through the bonus that you got this year, because it all belongs to Jesus anyway. I love it. <laughs> but to evaluate your life through those whom you've served and loved well this year. What does that look like for you? Because if we could be a community that transforms in Schlanga and beyond, we need some people who have the same mind as Christ. Go low, go slow, and serve the world around us. My friend Chris Gatoy has this great phrase. He says, you need to get some skin in the game. In other words, my hands need to get in the bucket of filthy water and wash from people's feet. I want to call this community harvest in this next season to be a people who serve. Because servanthood is inconvenient, and it's the most Christ-like thing that we can do.